Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 108, and I'm very excited about this episode, but before I give a little hint to it, um, I need to tell you some really cool news. This episode is going to air on the 7th of June, and on the 8th of June, Hey Human will be featured on Celebrity Undercover Boss, which stars Jewel. Um, Last year... I was asked to do a podcast interview with an artist, and I'm not going to give too much away because the show hasn't aired yet, so I want to make sure that I am um, good with all that stuff. But uh, anyway, so I agreed to interview this artist, and he came uh, to be interviewed for Hey Human and brought along with him this other woman who was from New Jersey and wanted to also be a country music star. And so I ended up interviewing both of them. Well, as it turns out, uh, what I thought this whole thing was for was not what it was for. And it was for Undercover Boss. And that woman was Jewel. So let me tell you something. They are masters of makeup and she's a really good actor because I grew up loving Jewel. No clue whatsoever that that was her. Looked nothing like her. So anyway, it's pretty exciting that Hey Human is going to have a national shout-out on a hit TV show. It airs on CBS. Uh, I believe it's 7 p.m. Central Time. So wherever you are, uh, look to see where Celebrity Undercover Boss will be showing and check it out. Uh, It will be on there, supposedly. We'll see what happens. I hope I made the cut. And of course, uh, I will be posting that episode uh, with the fake person who was Jewel and this artist uh, next week, actually. So that'll be exciting uh, and funny and weird. Um, so yeah, so it airs on Friday, June 8th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. So check out your local listings. And then I will post the podcast interview with them on June 14th. So Keep an ear out for that as well. So that's exciting news. And uh, I wanted to mention my dad's book again. It's available on Amazon. It's called Margaret, Outrageous Fortune. Uh, It's under Martin March. And it's a great read. So I highly recommend it. I think it's not very expensive. It's an Amazon digital book. uh, Self-published by my dad. I'm just really proud of him. And uh, so just want to plug that for him. Uh, yeah, so the usual stuff before I get to this episode, um, of course, find Hey Human on iTunes and give it a, um, a rating and a review. Please subscribe on whichever places you listen to podcasts, and that would be great. I'm on all the social medias, so feel free to follow. That's a tongue twister. Instagram, Facebook, uh, Hey Human Podcast. I'm on Twitter under Susan Ruthism. And, uh, oh, I've got news also. Uh, there's now a store on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. And in that store is the poster that I did. And what's special about this poster is that last year I went to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And for ten and a half hours, I stood completely naked and I was body painted by... Uh, Cheryl Ann Lipstrow, and she is a world-renowned body paint artist and artist in general. 
And the results are on this poster. And it's super cool. I'm really proud of it. And it's up there in the store for anyone to purchase. And it helps support Hey Human podcast. So if you'd like a Hey Human poster, go check it out and please order one. Um, yeah, and as usual, you can reach out to me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I would love to hear from you. There's been a few updates on the website in general, uh, you know, just to clean it up. Big shout out to my friend Ren, Renfree, who did all the updates and who did the original uh, website with me. And really, he did all the work. I just told him what I wanted. So big shout out. And as long as I'm shouting out, I might as well give a shout out to my friend Brad Callahan. He and I wrote the music that you hear when Hey Human starts and ends. So... That's fun. Okay, so what's next? I wanted to bring up, oh, the Amazon portal. This is a lot of business. I apologize, but this is the kind of stuff that has to get done. It's just part of the deal. Um, it helps keep everything ad-free, which I really am trying to do. So the Amazon portal is on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. You click on the Amazon portal, you shop on Amazon like normal, and it helps support Hey Human. So if you're an Amazon shopper, which most of us are, I think, uh, if you do it through the portal, it would be awesome. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, I think that's it. I had I made notes. iTunes, talked about that, talked about subscribing, talked about the social medias. Um, my own personal Instagram and Facebook are Susan Ruthism, which you can find pretty easily as well. If you want to follow me there, that's cool. That's more personal thoughts and that kind of thing. Okay, um, let's get to the episode eventually. That does happen. Um, episode 108 with Mrs. Pat Hodge. So I went to Oberlin, Ohio uh, with my friend Shay. And Shay arranged for all of this to for me to speak with Shay's grandma, Pat Hodge. And she was born in, as we'll talk about on the episode, in 1924 uh, in Mississippi. And to give you an idea of what, when it was and their family and such, she told a story off air that I wanted to retell, um, in this prelude that when they didn't have toothbrushes at all. And so they would go to dogwood trees and they would strip down the branch, the, the branches of the dogwood tree and then chew on it. And the, the, the branch would become super fibrous and that would be how they would brush their teeth. They would just chew on this and and their teeth would be cleaned. Wild, right? <laughs> so interesting. She's been around for a very long time and I was enthralled by Mrs. Hodge and her kindness and her grace and her wisdom and her sense of humor. Everything about her uh, was really quite lovely. And I'm excited for you to hear her story. Um, Mrs. Hodge was very patient with me uh, with all my questions. And I asked a lot. Um, a few she kind of answered around and about way. Uh, and that's okay too. But uh, <laughs> I had to really, you know, I was trying to pull some stuff out of her. And I think she's just at a place in her life. She's a very peaceful person. I think it's the best way I can describe it. She's very zen. And I think as I was trying to get um, a little deeper, 
I think she's just made peace with so much that maybe for her it just wasn't necessary. You'll get what I'm saying um, as you listen, I think. Um, I found her to be a treasure. That was the best way I could describe her. Um, Yeah, so without further ado, let's do this. Thanks for listening, everyone. Here we go. Hello, Pat Hodge. Hello. Thank you for being on Hey Human. Thank you It's for wonderful having to, me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, actually, technically, you're having me because I'm here in, in Oberlin, Ohio, in your home. So thank you for that. You're welcome. You began your life in Mississippi. Yes, Oxford, Mississippi. You were born in 1924? Yes. It's a minute ago. May 12th, 1924 is my birthday. You're a Taurus like me. <laughs> oh, hello again. <laughs> Yay, Taurus. Um, so I don't know which is better, to start at the beginning or start in the middle. What brought you to Oberlin? Repeat. What, what brought you here to the city from... Uh, I think it was the conditions uh, that my father was just tired of being a sharecropper. He was a sharecropper? Yes. Okay. And sharecropping was about one of the poorest uh, conditions that people could live in at that particular time. And he always had a dream that he wanted better for his children. And he came to Oberlin in 1940, and he sent for his family and my mother and five siblings came in 1941, right before the beginning of World War II. And you're the eldest child? I am the oldest of nine. Wow. That's a lot of kids. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I really think... um, People had felt as if though they had to have a large family because of the conditions that the more children you had, the more work they could do and things of that sort. Also, children died a lot more often. Well, yes and no, because one of the things I think on a whole, they did quite well because we had to learn how to do everything ourselves. We had to learn how to take care of our families. And a lot of times it was home remedies that was used for the illness and things Mm. of that sort. So among all the stress and the type of work that most parents had to do to just to provide clothing and food for their children is what made it so hard. But we learned at, I learned at an early age how they were able to do all of this because we never had any throwaways when it came to clothing. You pass one garment on down to the next child and we shared everything and neighbors i think reached out to be helpful to one another i think 
after leaving the South and coming North, I think it's a disappointment for a lot of people. And because my father had family here in Oblin, this is why he chose to come to Oblin. What did he choose as a career when he got here? That's just it. Jobs was very hard to find. Yeah, especially right right before the war. Yeah. Um, he just did art jobs until he eventually was able to get a full-time job. And people in Oblin, I think, had a great understanding for the people that was migrating north because so many of the Oblin residents came earlier and uh, it was just to escape, I think, the brutality of no respect for black people and looking for something better seeking a better life for the family. But in a lot of ways, they found that the condition wasn't much better than what they left in the South. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I can say, um, my father always believed in higher education. He believed that education was the answer to most of your problem because you don't have the cry of hunger, the cry of uh, abuse. If you have the necessities of life, I think that plays a big part in everything, even today's life. I feel as if though that was more jobs, it, we would have less crimes. And the problem, how do we solve that problem? I don't have the answer, but we must solve the problem because I think if more people, I'm not just speaking about black people, but if we could get all of our young people better educated and understand that we all are equal and we all have rights, I think America would be a better place. I agree with you. Okay. So. When, when you came to Oberlin, was it uh, very integrated or were blacks and whites still pretty separated? Because that year, that was 1941. The thing that it is you didn't have a choice. Because even when you think about a place like developed in Oblin. Yes, it was founded by whites. But the thing about it is, there's always work to be done. Labor, they had to have labor to do these things. And when I even think of places like Oblin College, yes, they hired a lot of black people, poor people, to work. But the salary wasn't all that good. And if you don't have the money to pay for the things that is needed, even education, 
um, you're not going very far. You st still feel as if though you are digging out of a hole and you have nothing to fill, uh, fill that hole with. And um, I often think of how my mother and father worked so hard to help all of us, although I was the oldest. And when we first thought about coming, I had just earned um, scholarship. And I didn't plan to live in Oberlin. But after seeing the condition of the black people, how my mother and father had to live, and my little brothers and sisters, they were called names they shouldn't have been called. And my brother, uh, the one that I just lost a few weeks ago, he was next to the he was the next oldest in the family. And I never will forget how he felt like he had to uh, help support his little brothers and sisters. And the way he did that, he got a little paper out. And it seemed like to me, uh, I didn't know so much snow could fall in one place mm -hmm. as it did the first year. He got a little job as delivering paper. And early in the morning, the only thing that you could see was a little red hat moving up and down the sidewalk. Well, it wasn't, it, the sidewalks wasn't like they are now, but he would deliver paper and that paper, money from the paper, that he would receive, which wasn't very much, but he would give to my dad and mom to help the rest of the family. So why did you turn down the scholarship and come to Oberlin? Um, when I found the conditions that we was coming into, it was no better than that we had left in the cotton fields of Mississippi. And that is why it was too much for one woman to handle. Your mom? Mm -hmm. My mother to handle. And I decided to stay and I uh, would take classes whenever I could. And uh, I lied about my age in order to get a halfway decent job so I could also help get a better home and uh, give my brothers and sisters a better opportunity. And things worked out fine. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I like to say something about, it was the education in Oblin. Yes, it was integrated schools, but arriving in Oblin and being from the South so often you was held back one grade, which that happened to my brother. He never complained about that. And I often wondered how it affected him. And I think when I look at the history of his life, it 
gave him a desire to become more motivated, as if to say to this town, you might have stopped me for just a short while, but I am going to make it and to accomplish all the things that he did, he made it. And in making it, he had many ideas about things. He left a legacy for the rest of the family to use. If you try, if you want something bad enough, and don't mind a little hard work, if you try and have confidence within yourself, you can make it. And it was things like this, things like that, that has kept the family moving. It started then, and it's still continued to go on. So you were when you were in Mississippi before you moved to Oberlin. You had received a scholarship. Where? <laughs> what was it for? Where was it to? It was at Mississippi Industrial, and it was two schools. And I don't know if a lot of people realize this or not. A lot of the schools were started by white families, and I don't think. Uh, the people that started the school knew uh, how we as black people were going to accept this. The reason the school was started is because most black, most uh, Caucasians in the South, black people were used as maids, babysitters, and uh, housekeepers for white families, especially the rich families. And we took that education. It's a possibility they didn't know how smart that we as black people are. Now we talked a little bit yesterday about the founding of Howard, for example. So Howard University. Yeah, some of these colleges were founded as a place for for uh, black people to go. The children of, right? We talked about that a little bit. Oh yeah, we did. We we touched on that. Was this also a university that was started for that purpose, or was it a separate? Oh yes. So talk about that a little bit. Okay. I think, that, I think a lot of people don't understand why some of what the the what. Uh, what was behind the creation of some of these universities? Okay. The creation of Howard and other schools. A um, lot of things happened during slavery that shouldn't have happened because... You can be blunt because my audience can take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember as a child uh, when a black woman... She really had two families. She had a husband who was black, and she had children by her husband. But she also perhaps might have been raped by the white man. And um, so therefore she had... By the master of the house, quote unquote, right? Uh -huh. Yes. And uh, the thing of it is, 
I don't know why. Oh, my grandmother told me the reason why a place like Howard was started. Two white men started Howard University, and the purpose was they had biracial children, and they wanted these children to have an education. And that's the only way that they could do it. And it grew, and when I think of Howard University and the number, I have three grandchildren. They're all attorneys. Uh, my grandson my grand and my youngest granddaughter, who is um, Shay, mm -hmm. little John, and um, Erica, after graduating from Howard, she then wanted to graduate from Harvard Law School. And I find myself thinking about this quite often because, okay, the legacy was already laid for us. How all of this have worked out because um, my great-great-granddaughter, who is, who represents the fourth generation, she just graduated from high school, and she's also going to Howard. I think my people, those who have gone over, and we have had a lot of uh, educated black men, and women to go to Africa and st really study the history of Africa. I think we have a better understanding and that under of ourselves and that understanding is we are somebody because of our forefathers mm -hmm. and so on. So anyway, how does that how does that affect I mean cuz obviously if you were born in 1924 and your father was a sharecropper mm -hmm. and then you just go back another generation or two, his father and then his father's father, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at what point uh, were you, was your family taken from Africa? Um, Stolen, I might say. Yeah, born in Africa. How well, far back this, is that generation for you? Uh, that generation, I would say two generations if you go Before back. Before you. Mm -hmm. Before so your great-great-grandparents mm -hmm. uh, were slaves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then how, how long until emancipation happened within your family? Um, I would have to look in the history book to give you the exact... But at least date. around somewhere around your father's generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think maybe when I was talking to you last night, I was telling you about this great-great-great-grandmother... Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Her mother came over on the slave boat. And she spent, before she, uh, this grandmother of mine and her mother, before they were separated, sold. Uh, they were sold separately? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, she talked to her a lot about her homeland of Africa. This brings in the storyteller. Africa did not have all the books. Everything was not on paper. 
going back to the Stone Age. You know, all the writing is on the stone, and we have to have people smart enough to tell you what it is and, you know, things of that sort. And she um, had a good memory until she died. The great-great-grandmother? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She remembered all the things, and also she didn't just talk about people. She talked about the land, the weather, the trees, and things, and the, even the ocean. Which is a big, I mean, a big tradition of Africa is the oral tradition, as it mm-hmm. is for indigenous peoples. So mm-hmm. keeping the stories alive by telling the stories. Oh, yeah. Because if you write it down, those papers get stolen, those right, things get stolen, right. but mm-hmm. you can't but if you have, steal someone's voice. If, I mean, you could, I suppose. Yeah, you could. But if you have a person who is so intelligent and their memories are so great, they're called the storytellers. That's what they do. And they must be, when they tell you something, they are right off not. He loses his job. And uh, I think of my great, great, great grandmother as being one of the greatest storytellers that we could ever wish for. Do you remember her when you were little? Do you remember her from your childhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, during those years, um, when a person was too old to work the fields, I'll uh, go and clean the master, they had to call the master's house. They had to stay and take care of the little kids who they didn't take to the fields and whatnot. And that old person was not able, no longer able to work in the field. So all day long, she would sit in a rocking chair. I don't know why it had to be a rocking chair, but they was very famous back then. She would sit in the rocking chair, and what was so funny is she thought you were not listening to what she was saying. They had a walking cane with the hook. You know, walking cane years ago. You got a crook at the top. She would reach out and grab you and knock you to the ground. She said, you're not listening. Well, some of the kids didn't want to listen because this was a daily thing we had to do with her. And I don't know why, but to me, it was the most interesting things because, take for instance, I guess I felt like she telling the story trying to get us to understand what kind of people we are, which it should give us a lot of pride in who we are and a desire to do better. It upsets me so much to see here a black child say to uh, another child of color, you are nobody. 
if someone hears that often enough, pretty soon they'll believe that. So we're saying you could say to a kid. Yeah. But little kids are pretty cruel yeah. to each other. Unfortunately, there are adults that say that to little kids. Right. Yeah. And it's usually um, mothers have the biggest responsibility. Too many mothers are telling their children, you are nothing, you're nobody. We must put a stop to that. What did your parents say to you? Were they very... I mean, you got It was always it. encouragement. Yeah. See, you can't look at people and say, all people are the same, because they are not. And we took advantage. A lot of people don't understand how did we learn how to read the um, King James Version when you Bible. say we, do you mean black people? I'm not sure who you mean when you say we. Or your family, or your family, or what does that mean, we? Well, you want me to tell you the truth. Yeah. My family is so integrated. <laughs> it's, it has reached the point with my family. Modern, this, this day this, and age. This right day and now. age, yeah. right mm -hmm. now. Sure. We are so integrated until we do not discuss color mm -hmm. among the kids mm -hmm. because it can be a hurtful thing. Um, and when you look at the whole society, you go into our school system and you will stand there and look over the crowd of children and you have to ask yourself, who is who? Because we are so, this color thing comes into the picture. I don't know anymore. Do you like it that way or don't like it that it way? It should be that way. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't think, I hear a lot of, of older people complaining I don't know who, I could say my uh, youngest granddaughter. I understand she's getting engaged, I engaged. It's okay with me. Engaged to a white person. Yes. Yes. But it's not all right with some people. Within your family or in general? In general. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. I can't live your life for you. And um, I see the world, I feel and see that the world is changing. I think we, with all of the intermarriage, I think we are eliminating a lot of hate. And I think it's going to take the now generation and the generation to come, the, the whole thing straighten out. Mm. From your lips to God's ears. So let's go back even further to Mississippi. Um, what are some of your earliest memories of being a, a child, especially being the first child, right? So your perspective I, my is earliest different. memory of being a child. Um, and I hope people understand that I don't care what happens. 
they are always good and bad and all races of people. I had, um, this is a true story. We lived on this farm and they had a family and they had a daughter. Only girls, that Caucasian girl that for miles and miles Ex around. Just so people understand, um, when the farms were owned by whites yes. and then black families would share crop. So yeah. it was in, in its own way a form of slavery. Yes. Because they were poorly paid and living conditions were horrifying. Yeah. And um, so even though they may have been quote unquote free, not so, not really free. No. I just wanted to make that distinction for anyone listening that might not know that. So, oh, well, so continue your story because I think that's important yes, as you tell yes. the story. So you're on the farm that's owned by this white family. Yeah, and they had this daughter. And how things worked at that time, and it was so such a. It was hard for me to understand. And I know I asked a question one day about some of the workers that worked the land. This house was big. Most of them had 10 roofs uh, because if you put a 10 roof on a house, it'll last much longer than wood. And I would ask questions. I was just a little girl, and I could sit in the dining room of the owner of this house. Uh, this, their daughter, would have a little chair and a little table for me sitting right beside where she sat at the table. And I would always ask questions, why are those men out there eating because of bugs of all kinds? And she says, oh, they don't want to come in and eat with us because they, you know, are sweaty and dirty. I didn't accept that as an answer. But she was very nice to me, and she taught me many things. But in her teaching, I didn't know there was a reason for it. Because they had, the Caucasians at the time, they had a way of planning their lives thinking that one day I will have children. You, you, yeah. Uh -huh. Thinking that the black families that work at the farms will have children. Mm -hmm. Right, okay. Just keeping and, the pronouns right. Uh, also, she was thinking about her future because she was thinking one day I will have a family and I will want some little black girl to be a friend to my daughter and a son or whatnot. So I'm gonna train her now, put her into training now. Teaching her the stories, teaching her the things that I am telling her. It's kind of complicated. So the so this little girl seeing you uh, at her, you know, sitting next to her on the table, she's thinking in the future when she has her white family, mm -hmm. your black family will care for her yeah. white family, and therefore she's going to sort of train you ahead Training. of time. I was being trained. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, um, I didn't realize that. But as I started getting older, why did, why is she teaching me all of these stories?
When you say training, what kind of things did she say to you in prepar- to try and prepare you for a life of servitude? Things I must learn how to do. Like how to behave and how mm-hmm. to eat and mm-hmm. how to... How to eat. Yeah. The story goes on and on. And some of it, I don't know if I should talk to you about it, tell you about it or what. But that was bad things that happened. I mean, I, if family. you're willing to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I really started looking at the picture, and I started at an early age, what is happening? Why are my people, they have no respect for them and things of that sort. Um, my father had a young cousin and um, he was a brilliant young man. He knew how to grow the cotton and to have good crops and things of that sort. He had a family of young children, and but he lived in a shack. I don't know, a shack might have had about three rooms and you might have had, your family might, you might have seven or eight kids living. He was very poor, and he, the, um, I'm going to mention a name, and you might want to erase it. The clans was awfully busy in the South. You don't have to erase the clan. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's well, part know, of the American uh, history. It's part of the life of the Americans and what poor people have had to deal with. Yeah. Um, what, the story goes that one evening, uh, this man, he was a member of the clans, was in the field of this black man, and he was talking about what a beautiful crop he had. But in the meantime, he was riding his horse up and down the roads of the cotton, destroying it, and this black young black man asked him, please don't do that. You didn't say. You didn't tell a white person what to do and what not to do. So this white person became very angry and told him he would be back that night to take care of him. And that meant they was going to lynch him. And he uh, had a gun. The, the, your, co- your father's cousin? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He had this gun and Uh, When this man went to break into his house, he shot and killed this clansman. He knew he had to start trying to run someplace to save his life. And he was an excellent swimmer. And um, there is, it's crazy, because there is a weed that grows in the south, but when it's it dries. It is what you call hollered. Nothing is on the inside of it. He learned that if he would go into the water, get this piece of dried weed, put it in his mouth, he could swim all day on the water and not be seen. And they couldn't figure it out because even back then, they had dogs that would track people. The dogs, they would take them on the other side of this 
stream of water. They would find no tracks or anything, and they kept watching this thing go around in the water. So they went in and pulled them out, and you might not believe this, but it's a true story. Well, that wasn't enough for this clan group. Each man, I understand, had to shoot him even after he was dead. Then they took his body and hitched it to a car and drove it into the town of Oxford and placed his body in one of the store windows because they wanted, it was a message for the rest of the black people. You can't do this. If you do, look what will happen to you. After three days, the family went and got the body and they could bury it. We as little children, uh, some adults, showed us the tree that they lynched him from. We could all tell you, if you go out, it was an old hut, what they called the highway going from Oxford into Hollis Springs and on into Memphis and places like that. If you go, you can see the tree. So we would always go and look at the tree and some of us would cry because we were hurt and so on. Well, a few weeks, just a few weeks ago, I had almost, I, I don't think about those kind of things, but a few weeks ago, a cousin of mine from Oxford asked me, do I remember the name of Elrod? And I said, Elrod, why are you asking me that? And he said, well, you know, they have put some kind of a marker where this tree stands all of these years. And I'm wondering what's going on in Oxford, Mississippi. And uh, I'm going to change that about the lynch. I was so, I was elated. I don't know if you've heard about some of the great um, music that Fisk University, you've heard of Fisk, okay. Well, a few weeks ago, um, they had, there in Oxford, they had the Fisk University Choir was singing there, and also they had the talking drums. Have you ever heard the talking drums? Mm -mm. You must hear them. Because drums was the first communication. In Africa, right. Yeah. And I never, I went to some of the places when I was growing up <clears throat> where it was, what they would have these big picnics every year way out in the woods someplace. And uh, it was called Two Days, Two Day Picnics. And people from all, whoever, had lived there in Oxford and knew about it, would come back home to go to these picnics. And I had never paid too much attention to the talking drums until 
Oh, it's about a month ago. Um, there is a um, young man. He was on tour here in America that played the talking drums. And it is kind of like a magic about them. It does something to you. You listen and you wonder, where was the beginning of all of this? That little drum sitting over there, mm -hmm. oh, he even played that for me. Mm. It, you almost seem like you're hypnotized from those drums. And it activates your DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And dancing is something else that we are noted for. Strange things out there still happening. You don't know why. You don't have all the answers. But if one of the things I have found out, if you continue to read and reading the right material, more and more, you will accept the fact that we all are equal. No one is any better than the other. The, crea the Creator create created us all, and we must learn how to live together, how to love one another, and do better than we are doing. Amen. I'm curious, is, uh, so you have two children, mm -hmm. son and daughter, that you, were, you had given birth to two kids. Uh, yeah. Raising, so what, what years were they born? Um, they both was born in March. March babies? Mm-hmm. They both are March babies. My son, I wish you could meet him. He's. I'm, I think I'm going to tomorrow. Yes, you, yeah. will, meet, you will like him. Yeah. He's very interesting. I don't know what kind of questions he might ask you. <laughs> but anyway, and my daughter, I didn't know they were so intelligent. Now, I raised these kids, and when my daughter started, when she graduated from Oberlin High School, and... Uh, and she started talking, well, she started talking about going away to college mm -hmm. before school started. And uh, she, she said she wanted to go to school in Ada, Ohio. Ada, for years and years, only had one black person living there. And when she started the school there, they only had six black students. But that's where she wanted to begin her life's journey. And she did so well. How was raising a black daughter versus raising a black son? How, how did, you, did you, was there a difference for you as of how you shaped them for being prepared for the world or was it the same? Well, in a way you have to. No, a lot of people don't believe it, but you have to. Have to. Yeah, you have to, uh, I think, talk more to your daughters about life, what to expect, asking questions about what do you want to do when you get older. 
How, what do you want to see? Do you have a desire to help shape the world? And she did. She made a great difference. And because I think, really think, females grow up faster than males. Always believe that, and that's how I tried to raise my two children. But also having the mother's respect for both of them. And it's kind of good because I think most brothers have lots of respect for their sisters. If they are being taught by their father, if they have fathers, that comes in there also. So it's, it never ends because, okay, next, it was the grandkids. I didn't know this would happen, but I was just as interested in my grandchildren as if though they were my children. And I think that my daughter did a wonderful job with her children, she and her husband. We, somewhere and somehow, we must get that male back into the family. The fathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So We have to stop incarcerating them at rapid rates. Mm -hmm. That will help. And they are slowly coming up with ideas yeah. are helping to sh helping mankind to shape his life because where do you think it got lost as a, as a black woman when you look on the history of black maleness what where do you think that turning point was where suddenly was it somewhere before the civil rights movement was it during the civil rights movement where i i think where did fathers and sons i think um, time had a lot to do with it because when you think about even the migration uh, with my, uh, my family to Oblin, I think about the times when my mother, my father left my mother coming to Oblin to find a better place. See, it was months and months before we saw him again. So all the teaching and training was left for my mother to do. And of course, the job market had a lot to do with it. Because for a long time, a lot of uh, black women, they, uh, they had a job to do was to raise their children and also the master's children, but they had more of a contact with the children than the fathers did. The so, fathers were in the fields and things. Yeah, yeah. The black females seemed to be farther advanced than the uh, male. That started back during slavery time because it was set up that when school started, 
the black female could go and begin her education, but the black male could not leave until all the crops was gathered in the fields. So that, I think, was the beginning of black women even feeling that they had more power. They were better educated to handle various things, and the black male accepted it. I think all of this have a lot to do with what is happening to our young men today. They really, it's been a struggle all through life for them to really learn and live up to their responsibility. Fathers, uh, they would talk to their sons, but it was always mom's voice they would listen to. Uh, the grandparents, they played, grandmothers played a great deal in the development of the black male. Would you say that the African-American community then is more matriarchal? Because America seems to be under the idea of being patriarchal, but it seems to me within certain cultures, like uh, like the Latina Latino culture, mm-hmm. the matriarch is really the power place. And it sounds like it's also that way for... Um, maybe so. But as I was growing up, these are some of the things that I noticed. Um, Would the boys in your family uh, mm-hmm. respect you the way they respected their own mom? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. And they talk about it today. Yeah. Oh, you partly raised me. Mm-hmm. The reason I can say the things I do about my race of people is because you can hear people talk about it, but when you have experience these things as a person and live with it. Do you think since you are the oldest child in your family that when, for example, when your husband passed away and you never remarried Mm-mm. and um, and you became, a, you were independent, you're still independent, who you are at 94 oh, yeah. and you're super independent. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think, I mean, when that happened, first of all, I imagine that was devastating of course but how do you adjust to that and still not go crazy you know this is why I was excuse me I was able to deal with the death of my husband my childhood had a lot to do with it Mm. I when he died I didn't feel helpless because he and I had discussed the various things of who would perhaps live the longest, what would happen. And we as women just seemed to be able to handle. We as black women seemed to be able to handle our tragedies and various situations better than 
our husbands, our fathers, our grandfathers, or whatever, and we deal with it differently. Hmm. And it does make a difference because a lot of women, a lot of black women, I feel we marry a black man or either a Caucasian. They expect this of us because we seem to be the strongest and um, a lot of times you will hear them say, oh woman, but they understand. She have the right to do that. She's been taught to do it. <laughs> to be the boss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to put the word boss in there, but that's basically what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Where should we go from here? I think fathers should be more aggressive to their sons. And How do you mean? What do you mean by that? Talk to them. Tell them the responsibility mm. of manhood. Mm -hmm. Aggressive meaning uh, the the role, what's expected of them. Not mm -hmm. a, not aggressive as in yeah. yeah, got it. So anyway, I think we would see our society changing. I think um, the male child would have more respect for themselves and also for the black woman. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned something earlier um, that I thought was just so important. Um, you talked about making sure a child understands their value and their worth. Um, the value of a child knowing that somebody thinks they're worthwhile. Oh yes, I think we as, I don't, I. I can only speak for my people. As I was growing up, and this old grandmother that I told you about who mm -hmm. taught me so much, one of the things that even at the youngest of age, and what made me feel so good about myself, she would always say, you are somebody. You can be whatever you desire to be, but it takes work. It takes confidence. The reason I know this is because I remember Burl coming to Oblin from Boston, and she didn't have a mother remarried, so there was a stepfather who stepped in, who came into the picture. She didn't know, I had the feeling that she was just a nobody. And at graduation time, she was able to graduate. At that particular time, she saw a dress in a store, and she wanted that dress. Her mother told us she couldn't afford to get it for her. And 
she didn't have the slightest idea of her action and the things that she was saying that there was someone listening to her. It was a prom dress, right? She wanted to yeah, go to prom? She wanted to go to the prom. So there was a person who asked a young man that had a decent job, would he buy that dress for her? And he was a little hesitant because people, as we all know, like to gossip and talk about things they shouldn't talk about. And he finally decided, yes, he would get the dress. But she was never told who bought that dress for her until she was a grown woman and had a daughter of her own. Because even though it was in secret that this dress was purchased for her and she did mm-hmm. not know until she herself was a grown woman. Mm-hmm. And had that, a daughter. And had a daughter of her own. But mm-hmm. she carried that knowledge in her that someone cared enough about mm-hmm. her to get her that dress. Yes. And knowing that someone out there cares for you, yeah. it makes all the difference The difference yes. in the world. Mm-hmm. One tiny little moment in her life it doesn't could have, have to be shaped. a whole it doesn't have to be a whole lot. Just knowing that I'm loved. Yeah. And I think I spoke on the word of love. Love is the most important thing you can share with a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. As far as me telling stories, that mirror you see over there on the wall, I had my nephew. He was having many, many problems in school and so on. And I had him for a while. And what I would do, and uh, the family came together. We put him in um, private school. He resented it. But each morning before he walked out of that door, he had to stand in front of the mirror and say to himself about six times, I am somebody. Today, people will know me because I am somebody. It's many little things we can do to help our children, but people don't seem to see that. Yeah, people are caught up in other things these yes, days. Yes, they're caught up into other things that's not even important. So oh. you talked about the little girl in the on the farm when you were a little girl. Oh yeah. And I, I'm curious when you, as you were growing up, in a time that was rife with some pretty uh, intense civil unrest. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you? keep from hating white people? Because I was told hate is destructive and I don't care what color you are. And we have many shades of people. (laughs) You don't let hate enter your mind. Even find something nice to say about that person. I don't care how small it is. When you can say something nice to a person, it makes them feel better about themselves. 
So as as you're trying to, you know, as a black woman raising up black children mm-hmm. in a in a world that was again had a lot of issues with race and still does, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um like when somebody like a Martin Luther King Jr. comes along, when Dr. Mm-hmm. King was, you know, or Malcolm X or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, yes. how what did you how did you help your children understand what all that was about? You just told them the truth about it. I, you ask yourself, wonder what Dr. King really thought about all of this. If you remember in one of his speeches, he talked about, he might, um, I'm trying to get the words together, he talked about that mountain that you had to climb. Mm -hmm. And he said he may not be there with you. To go over. Yeah. Okay. Think about that. But he had told them in his own way what it takes to get to the top of that mountain. It was a sacrifice. All, when you think about all the things he went through, and then he says, I might get to the top of the mountain, but I might not go over. After you do all you can, reach out helping people, regardless to what color they might be, it's no guarantee. It goes right back to making that sacrifice. How do you explain to your children when? That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. But how do you explain to your? I'm sorry. This stuff gets me emotional. No, 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 no. <laughs> when no. somebody like Dr. King is assassinated, how do you then look to your children and and hold that in your heart, that love and that space for the world when such such things happen. I know, but I want you to uh, just think about something. And I had some, I had faith that that was something better than what we have here on this earth. And that faith comes through Jesus Christ. We just celebrated his resurrection. And one thing that he said, I will be with you always, is there. But you have to search for it. You can be anything you want to be. And even, I don't know how far you will go with your Education, I don't know how far you will go with what you are doing now, the things you like to do. But think about it. If you get out of bed tomorrow morning and say, oh, shoot, I'm not going to do this anymore. You would be failing yourself. That's all it is. It's simple. But people don't understand. And what? You've lived for 
94 years and had to live through the life that I lived. And I had not only my mother, my grandmother, and there was one aunt who guided me through those teen years and so on. I appreciate them. They all are gone. But they left a legacy with me. And this is why I do the things and say the things I do. And Dr. King is that as well, a legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so are you. Have you ever thought about it? I guess not, no. <laughs> okay, start thinking about it. I think you're wonderful. I've only met you <laughs> once. But if you notice, I reached out and I said, you just another daughter. Thank you. Yeah. Don't let no one ever tell you you're not loved. Come back to Oakland. I'll tell you again. (laughs) If we let ourselves think, I could sit here if I let my mind go back, back. Perhaps I would start crying too. I really think that it's something we don't give enough thought to. We're going to have to learn how to love one another more. I don't care what color you are. It changes your thoughts to mostly about yourself. Be sure that you yourself have the right thoughts and what can I do to make this world a better place. This is what I try to do daily, now even. I can't visualize not liking someone. Maybe that person don't particularly care for me, but I care for that person. To talk about, I think if I had of when I was a small child listening to this old grandmother, if she hadn't taught me that love is one of the most important things there is, it, it has no color <laughs> or anything. You just have to know how If you want people to be nice to you, and it don't always go down like that, but you have to be strong enough to accept what someone else has to offer you. And maybe through your action, you can change the mind of that person. I don't know. Hmm. The thing about it is, coming to Oakland, What helped a lot is when these factories, the union, uh, was strong. And they started hiring women in the factories. What year year was this? This was, I would say, we came in about 40. Well, I didn't get the job until I was here. Find a job, a decent job, until 
1944, is when I was working. And I didn't know I had, well, I consider myself at that particular time, I thought I was a young woman. And I didn't know I had the strength to speak out against the evil that I saw going on around me. I didn't know that here we are in World War II and so much unjust and prejudice was taking place and in a place like a shop that was um, bit cleaning uh, airplanes. Um, I had this little brush, and, um, little electrical brush that when you finished the engine of an airplane, it had to be clean, no residue or anything was left on it. I began to see what was happening among women, the unjust that we women were going through. And I never will forget the day I was just fed up and I said to the foreman, uh, I asked the question, don't we have someone that is president of a union? Because I was trying to find ways to put a stop to some of the things that I was seeing. And he says, yes, but he's way across the shop over there someplace. And I asked if I could be excused from my work to go over there and talk to him. And when I, was when I first started talking to the union president, he just looked at me and smiled. He says, little girl, what do you think you can do? I says, I don't know, but I'd like to give it a try. He says, well, okay come to the meeting Saturday. Okay. I got up and I got on the bus and I went to Elyria and I was at the meeting hall in plenty of time. When I walked into the hall, the man almost went crazy. What is she doing here? That's a woman. We don't want her here. The uh, union, the, the president in the union said, he said, yeah, she has a right to be here because she's one of our, you know, the employees of the shop. And he said, I will tell you, men, men get together, oh God, you don't know what's going to come out of their mouths. He said, you're going to have to clean up your language. That's the first thing. Okay. Okay. For me, that was the beginning of my work, fighting for the rights of people. And the next thing I know, I got involved with the NAACP, and I'm still a member of the NAACP because before we left the South, NAAC, I think, is the oldest organization there is that has been fighting for years and years for the rights of people. So when I look back on my life, the beginning as a child, 
and now as a 94-year-old woman, I feel like there hasn't been too much I have missed. And it never ends. <laughs> it must continue until every woman, every child know that they have a right to be here and have a voice in what is taking place. I feel like we are the strength of the whole world. We women. But do we realize how, if we use that strength, how far we can go? Life is hard, I know. But if we just take a little time, have you ever said a prayer? A lot. Okay. <laughs> if you just say a little prayer and ask God to help you go through this world, to show you, to talk to you, he will talk to you, help you to understand the things he wants you to do. Do it on a daily basis. He will. You'd be surprised. When you do, just drop me a note and say, I might not have been all the way there, Pat Hodge, but I'm sure getting there. Or I'll get in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're going to be all right. Because I'm going to ask God to help you to be all right. Thank you. All right. I love you. I love you too. And you don't have to know a person for a long length of time to tell them, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. It is something about people who believe in the right thing when you first meet them. You might say to yourself, oh, that's a wonderful person to get to know. Yes. Let me give you a big hug. Thank you. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. And I wish it. you the best. I wish you the best as well. I'm glad you're on the planet. Well, I'm glad that I have met a young lady who is interested in this kind of things. And um, I'm quite sure as you go through life, you will meet many different nationalities of people who is interested in what you're doing. Hope so. Does it make you feel good? I love doing this. Okay. I, I'm a storyteller in my own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This might sound way out there someplace, but when whatever I say to you is coming from my heart, you are just another one of my children. Thank you. I love you. I love you, and too. And I just met you. Well, I love you, too. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye, everybody.